Alrighty, who's enjoying this journey of unpacking really who he is, who we are, and how our lives are one with that, and the fellowship that we're invited into, and so the function flows out of our fellowship, or the function flows out of our oneness, and that's where these works are truly discovered in fellowship, not just doing any work, but only doing what the Father says. Jesus did nothing from his own initiative, and so if this is your first time behind me, you've seen a blank canvas which we are painting on um, although the canvas is white and clear because we are declaring God's macro or big picture plan for us as his people and it must be heard and seen all from the eternal so it wouldn't do us any justice for us to start painting this so we could see it in the physical because it would ultimately lead us astray we would go, yeah, I've got a mental agreement of what that looks like because I've seen it, and you would think you know it when you have to know it through revelation. And so that's why it's always going to stay blank because we all have to see it in him. And the Holy Spirit, as individuals, wants to reveal it in you and to you because he is our teacher. He needs to engrave it on our hearts and our minds, not us. So we are just the vehicle that declares the word, this eternal word, this eternal gospel. And then the Holy Spirit who is in us and with us wants to engrave it and write it, literally tattoo it onto our hearts and our minds so then we can see it. And so as we all go through that process, we see the same thing. We're of one mind, one spirit, one love, one purpose. The true oneness that Paul speaks about, not conforming to a functional task, thinking that is oneness. That's the challenge for the church, is the church will never be one until she's one with her groom. And so that's the goal. Individually, we want to be one with our groom, because if we're one with our groom, we're one with one another. We don't go to be one with one another as our first place we go to be one with him. That's why physical relationship can't trump spiritual relationship. We can't value our physical relationships here over spiritual ones. That's the wrong way around. Okay? And so as a, uh, as a bit of a disclaimer for this morning, because we're only going to look at one verse in the book, but it's a very powerful verse, and we're going to unpack that and when I say one verse in the book, there's probably going to be a couple of verses, and these guys might bring to light some other verses, but predominantly we're just going to look at James 4, 4 to 5. But before we get into that, I want to give us a disclaimer, because there's something we must all have a handle on before we actually look at this passage of Scripture. And that is that one, God loves us. Two, there is no condemnation in Christ. Number three, we must grasp that the context for the scriptures is a marriage covenant. Okay, because what we're going to look at reflects those three things. You must know that the Father loves you not based on your behavior, but based upon Him and His love for you. You must know that there's no condemnation if you've received Him as Christ, as your Savior which that enables you to look at scriptures that have the possibility to put fear into you. 
And this is one of those scriptures that we're going to look at. Without that lens, it could possibly put condemnation in you because there's no condemnation in you in him, but you're hearing it as condemning rather than as conviction. Are you tracking with me? So it's very important that you know you're loved. And under love, we look at these, what we would say, difficult or hard scriptures which really are all just based on love. So it's all love. It's all Christ. It just challenges in a way that some other scriptures don't. You know, it's the one about God so loved the world he gave his one and only son. We're like, amen. Thank you, Father. And then he turns around and says, but unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, you're not worthy. Well, I like that, but I don't quite like that. And yet it's one and the same word. And we must know, as we looked at last week, know the whole counsel of God. We must be prepared to look at every facet of God because it's a whole picture that he speaks into. To not look at the whole is to be lopsided. So you don't know the whole. How can you come into the wholehearted life in Christ? Okay, But everything that gets said gets said because love is covering us. Love covers a multitude of and to not live by faith is sin. Okay, So to not live to the standard of faith in a person is to live beneath the standard the church is called to. And the Bible calls that sin. Okay, But sin is covered, correct? Sin is forgiven, yes? So once we get the realization of just how much we're loved, if we're living beneath the standard we're called to, then we can turn, seek, and then live to the standard we're called to, called faith. And so we must look at every aspect of Christ because he is a whole and he wants us living in the whole. Is that cool? All right, so let me just pray, and then we're going to get into James 4, 4 to 5, which is just on page 2, right at the top. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we get together again today in your name. We thank you for the freedom that we have in you together in your name. Thank you, we'd never take that for granted. Father, I thank you for this opportunity we have right now to hear a word that would build life in us. I thank you for your blood and your body that was given and laid down that I and we would become Israel, that we would become the chosen people, that we would know what that is and live as it is, that we wouldn't just know that, yeah, that's my identity and live a foreign reality, but we would live as Israel. We would live as the body of Christ. We would live as sons, as children, who not only know you, they know who they are. And they know everything that's accessible to them in you to live a life that is eternal. And so we just continue to speak. We continue to pray. We continue to love and encourage and hope and bear and be patient with one another. And be gentle with one another as you are with us as we move towards this promise that is contained within your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday morning and Sunday night, and if you haven't heard or you didn't hear Sunday night and you're not tracking, can I encourage you to go and track because everything we're saying is defined by what we've said. So if you miss what was said, then you might mishear and misread the context. 
So you need to track because everything is fitted in alignment. It's essential you know your Israel of the Commonwealth of Israel with what we're about to look at. Otherwise, you'll go, you're not talking to me because I'm not a friend of the world. I'm not an adulteress. You're not talking to me, okay? And so last week, morning and night, we talked about what it was to be part of the Commonwealth of Israel, to not be of Jew or Gentile descent, to not be of natural descent, not natural color, but through the power of the Spirit of God, bring us into a people of promise because we're all of the order of Abraham. And we looked at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, which clearly speaks of this reality that we have been grafted in. So we were not part, but we got grafted in through the resurrected life, and now we're a people of covenant. So we must understand what it means to be a people of covenant because Jesus, God, made a covenant with Israel, didn't he? He made a covenant with the Israelites, and covenants aren't to be broken, correct? And within the covenant, there are conditions towards that covenant. So just like in the marriage covenant we have with one another, Danielle and I have a marriage covenant. Within that covenant, there are conditions to which we both live, yes? If we break those conditions, we are committing adultery. Tracking? So it's the same in the spirit. We need to know that we are a people of covenant. And within the covenant, there are conditions that must be kept if we want to keep the covenant that God has established with his people Israel, which we are. If we break those conditions, we are breaking covenant. God doesn't break them with us, we are breaking them with him. Now his love is covering that. Aren't you thankful? In view of God's mercy, how much he loves wanting and calling his church out of Israel, so out of Egypt, come out of the world physically, then let come out of it in your heart and your mind. You are to have no lovers but me. You are to have no idols in your life. You are to be mine, for I'm calling you for my own possession, not one another. Okay, can you hear the seriousness of this? Because what we're about to look at in James is going to paint the picture. If we're friends with the world, then we are adulteresses. And we go, well, I'm not a friend of the world because I got saved. It's If you love and love yourself and love your possessions and love another more than, you may find yourself as an adulteress because James isn't talking to a non-Christian world. He's talking to the church. We don't have to talk to the world about being a friend with the world. They already are. Now, we're called to be friends with God, which means covenantal partners. It's not be a mate. So where Jesus speaks to the disciples in John and says, I call you friends, he's talking about calling you a covenantal partner. But then he says, if you do what I command. So there's a condition, isn't there? We tend to miss that. I am a friend of God but I break maybe conditions. So I'm breaking covenant. He loves me in that state, hoping I'm going to receive love, turn from that, and be fully wholeheartedly abandoned unto him. And that is the entire story of the entire gospel. 
And it started with a people called Israel, who were always breaking covenant, correct? And so when you realize you're part of that covenant, you're part of that lineage, you're part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're part of this people group, and there's all these covenants, then a whole different dimension takes hold and takes shape. And the seriousness of the commandment you're confronted with. You no longer just go, yeah, God loves me and I go on my way. It's God loves me and I love God. With an incorruptible love, Ephesians 6, 24. Grace and peace to those who love God, Jesus Christ, sorry, with an incorruptible love. All right? So that's your disclaimer. That's your preface. This is the context for James. So James 4, 4 and 5 says this. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? That is powerful. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So once again, James is addressing the church. Okay. So I just want to open up thoughts of uh, what we got, guys, from this. And maybe that whole thing around you adulteresses. That's a pretty powerful statement that James makes. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, it's such a massive verse, hey, you know, and, and for me in, in, in reading this and, and meditating on it, I've almost, it just made me think, you know, it's, it's often in these big time scriptures that actually if you hear what he's truly saying and not what he's not saying, it uncovers almost like the greatest promise, you know, because to me it's like in, in saying you adulteresses, ultimately it's what is he comparing it to? You know, so I just think about for me in, in my marriage, if I'm intimate with Tess, it's not adultery because we are in a covenant relationship. But the issue here is that he's saying the covenant relationship that he's made with us is between us and him. And so, so to, to break that as adultery because of the strength of and the perspective that he has of our relationship with him, you know? I guess to me the question is, so we can see clearly here how he perceives his relationship with us, is that he's saying, I have made a covenant with you. I am for you. I've actually given my son. I've spilt my blood to redeem you back into relationship with me. Now, the fact that you're an adulteress, has nothing to do with how I see you, but everything to do with how you perceive me. And so to me, this is like this, while it sounds intense, it only sounds intense when you actually don't understand the promise. Just like when we're talking about if you don't hate your mother, your brother, your own life, the intensity of it is like you only hear the pinch when you don't fully comprehend the, the depth of the covenant and the commitment that he has to us and where to have with him, you know? And so just like, you know, you know, just like in, in our physical marriage, you wouldn't say that being exclusively devoted to one wife is a harsh statement. It just is because of 
we would all agree the strength of that marriage covenant is actually its wholehearted devotion to one woman or to one man, you know? And I think to me that the, the ultimate thing here, I was, I'm like, man, like the way that James, when he's writing it, he knows the reality of the eternal marriage covenant between Christ and the church. And the eternal spiritual covenant has become more real to him than the things of the earth, you know? And that being an adulteress is, has nothing to do with any physical thing. He's not, he's not saying, guys, you've gone off and, and had affairs physically. He's saying that you've strayed from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ, seeing the natural earthly things as being more important than what the ultimate spiritual covenant that I've always predestined and called and created you to be part of, you know? And so to me, it, once again, it comes back to, do, can we read and, and, and see these scriptures through the lens of promise, you know, as opposed to a problem or an issue, you know? So that was probably one of the key things, key things for me. That's awesome. I love Chris. it. I, one of the things I love about you, Sam, is you're like, this is a massive scripture. And I think that every scripture you might just say that about, which I just think is so, so awesome. It's funny, but it's awesome because they are all massive scriptures, right? There's, there's no small ones. Um, so he, yeah, he has the best way of describing the magnitude in the most simple way, isn't it? Well, how good is that that Sam doesn't just go, oh, it's a massive scripture and that's it. There's a reason why Sam sees it as a massive scripture. There's, there's something behind it. Um, and so, absolutely, what a, what a serious statement that this group of people are called adulterers and adulteresses. And I love that God is so good to give us pictures that we understand. We understand what that is, that that's serious, because he's not speaking to children. It's a mature audience. This is something that really matters. It's significant. And for me, I go, you know, you read the bit ahead of that where he says, where are these things coming from among you? And he's talking to the body and he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't they come from your desires for pleasures? And he's basically speaking to this group of people and he pretexts why they're called adulterers and adulteresses. It's because they preferred what it is that they wanted over the other. And I was just reading um, Second Timothy, I think it is, where, it's where Paul He's talking about someone that was walking with him and walked away, and he says, Demas, I think it is, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world more than. And so Demas is an example of someone who is an adulterer because he sought something for himself more than he sought for the other. And isn't that the, the, the most basic commandment of marriage is love? your wife, like Christ, loved the church and gave himself for her. So in terms of priority, you know, we, we should all be putting others' needs and, and desires over our own. That's what selflessness looks like. And those that are called adulterers and adulteresses have put their own needs first. And no relationship can thrive, eh, when, when if there's selfishness, yeah. if there's two selfish people yeah. in a relationship, you know, yeah. or even if there's one selfish person yeah. and the other one's fully committed. Yeah. Um, 
uh, also I picked up on on those verses before where um, where it says envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. Um, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We do wars and fights. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from desires for your pleasure? And I, I think I see adultery, spiritual adultery, is when we are looking for pleasure apart from God, when we're looking for things outside of him. And I, I kept getting this picture last night as uh, we were, we had the Willis's over last night and we were talking about, you know, covenant. And it's like, imagine a bride and a groom standing here, you know, and they mean to say their vows and yet the bride is looking the other way, not even facing her groom, distracted by the many other things and um, finding pleasure from things that are outside of her groom. And so in essence, it's you're right, it's how we see him. An adulteress looks at the one that's before her, her groom, and says, you're not enough. You don't have what I need. You don't fully satisfy. And yet he knows he's the only thing that can truly satisfy that soul, you know. Um, yeah. Key, and I was trying to remember what Chris said right at the start about Sam, and, and Mal just mentioned it there about seeing. Yeah. So the reason why Sam says it the way he says it and is convinced is because he sees it. Yeah, right. And then Mal just said how you see him, yeah. and that's the key, isn't it? Because it requires a spiritual sight, which requires a spiritual hearing, because faith sight comes through hearing and hearing a very specific word which is called the Word of God. And so unless we're hearing and seeing as he says it and sees it, this will always be like my head's hurting. And then you may say things like, are you saying that getting married is wrong? Are you saying that having children and having a career and having a job is wrong? This is where a lot of people go. We go down this pathway. and No, it's very clear that the children are a gift from God. It's very clear that God... the institution of marriage comes from above it's around seeing and hearing having his mind on it all so we don't get entangled in it like Paul said so Paul says it's not wrong getting married but he said but I'm trying to actually help you um, not get entangled in the affairs of life because a wrong mindset in relation to everything in him leads you on a wrong path And so this is critical that we actually hear this spiritually, see it spiritually as a whole and understand it because then we can actually turn and start living in an alignment to it. And I think you have to receive the gospel in that way, right? You know, that has to be received within you because otherwise you'll just breeze over something like this And there'll be no conviction or any sense of any issue, you know? Like, I just imagine if I got up here and we all sitting on the panel, I said, guys, I've got something terrible to tell you. I've been in an adulterous relationship. They'll be like, (gasps) you know, you could just, you could just, are you, you, really, seriously? That's been going on? And There would be such a sense of shock and, like, and just for the, camera I'm not saying that it is the case (laughs) 
but, but do you know what I mean? Like, we, we know the physical so well, and we know the seriousness of what that would mean, particularly for someone who's up here on a microphone sharing about the gospel, you know? There would be such a, a sense of, of awe and, you know, that this is a big deal, you know? But it's almost like now we talk about, you know, an, an adulterous relationship between Christ and the church. And imagine if I got up here and said, guys, you know, the Holy Spirit's convicted me. I've, I've actually, I've had a greater love for my work than I have had for Christ, you know. And it might just be like, oh, Sam, that's, that's nice of you. Thanks for sharing, you know. Let's move on. Do you see what I'm saying? And, and to me, I'm like, that, that shows that we are still fleshly, natural, earthy as opposed to heavenly and, and spiritual because the earthly natural things shock us and of, uh, of a greater priority and weight than the ultimate spiritual heavenly things that, that are going to define not just this life but what we're looking at the age to come, you know? And so I think in all of this, what you're saying is seeing from the Spirit is so absolutely essential. And I think the reason why these scriptures are so real to us, I speak for myself, is because this is something that I personally have been convicted of, you know, in the sense of 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 seeing man like I've been I've been called to be part of this marriage covenant with Christ. And yet if I'm deeply, deeply honest, coming to a point and in years past of, of realizing, man, I, I have been living for for earthly, natural things more than I've been living for him, you know? And so the reason the scriptures are real is because they've confronted me to the core and have produced repentance, which has actually led to the most amazing life and being set free from me and being set free from the things that I previously loved and into such a liberating, life-giving relationship with the one I was always created to know and be um, in covenant with, hey, you know? And so it has to be real. Hey? So. Can, I, um, can we do a bit of audience participation here? What I want to see is a show of hands from everyone that considers themselves to be the bride of Christ. Put your hands up if you're living in that revelation of that. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, I love how Greg started. Thanks for participating. That, that section's over now. Um, no. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna ask for a show of hands of all the adulterous. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, everyone's hand goes up. Um, Saved by the bell. Anyway, <laughs> what I love, I love how Greg started, and he said, "Look, you know, if you're hearing this, this isn't the case. There's no condemnation in Christ." And what I love is that we can read into this and assume some things, rightly I believe, that for the fact that he's calling us or anyone that is in this relationship, this adulterous relationship, an adulterer and an adulteress, he's already crediting us with this relationship that, that we are in with him. So he says, whoever wants to be a f- friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what, what I take from that is that God, if we don't know this, he's not our enemy. He's so for us. He is, if he hasn't shown it enough already, he's so for us. And if anyone turns away from that, it's not him turning away from them. It's us turning away from him. And I feel like what's such a massive part of this is our power to choose. What it is that we choose, what do we, and look what it says there, whoever wishes 
to be a friend of the world. What are we, you know, what are we dreaming about? This is a heart issue. This is an internal position where we are, we are looking at something else, longing for something else, wishing for something else, or the object of our affection is well placed. That's right. We have our eyes set on the one where we, we realize where it is that we belong and who it is that he says we are in this relationship with him. And our lives will reflect that, won't they? Yeah. So it's like the Israel reality, you know. It's who God says you are. He says you're my friend. So he calls the disciples friend, covenant partners, but they're not living as covenant partners. So the challenge for you and I is you are, now you need to live. Okay, so you can't just go, I am, and not live, because the whole thing is on the premise of demonstration. God knows those who love him. Okay, 1 Corinthians 8.3. It says God knows those who are set apart for him. He knows those who actually love him. Okay, and so the challenge is the demonstration of who we are, and that's where it gets nitty and gritty. That's where offense can be found but also oneness is found because to not be able to demonstrate what you say you are is to be in disconnect between who you actually are you know I've never not tried to be Greg Simnor it's just one and the same thing and so the challenge is and this is why this word that is heard and seen in the spirit enables the outworking of the life. And so this is where um, there's a repentance and an apprehension and a resting that is required if we're not yet living. And so this divine covering has been put in place so we can live it. So when we get to the end and we actually turn up, you know, at that judgment, he doesn't look at us and go, well, I know you said it, but I know you didn't live it. Let sh- me show you your life. Yeah. Okay, so there's, that's why the ten virgins are there. They're there to show us that f- although they were all virgins, every one of them was a virgin, yeah? Five didn't live out they were, the way they were supposed to live out, and five did. Okay, And this is why when James says, do you not think that the Scripture speaks to purpose? Okay, so we have to come back to God's first intent. We have to know the context for the scriptures, not through head knowledge, but through revelation. We have to know why Paul said that this mystery, like why does Paul talk between a man and a woman and at the very end in Ephesians 5 say, I'm not talking about a man and a woman. So he, he knows us. God, so he uses these analogies, these physical covenants to then show us something far greater, and it's called a mystery. So he says, I'm not really talking about, but I am, but I'm not, as a first place. In the beginning is God. The first is the marriage covenant between me and the church. If we don't grasp this at our beginning, we will not understand what the seriousness of what James is alluding to, because you'll just go, eh, you love me, eh, I'm all good. 
See, and so this is the challenge because the conviction that requires a turning is intense. And you can't live this out unless there's a conviction and a crucifixion of the heart because you'll try, but you don't have the substance in you to be faithful to it because you're still trying, see? And you'll last a few weeks out of just discipline and then it'll just be all too hard and then you go right back to the start. And this is the challenge because the Scripture, do you not think the Scripture speak to purpose. Now, the scriptures are prophetic. See, we, we tend to think, and maybe we say, we general statement is prophecy is this. Uh, Kirk, I see you going in three years' time to Cambodia and establishing a school. And we call that prophecy. Now, it is because prophecy foretells the future. Yeah? Okay, so that's a form of prophecy, but it's very much earthly prophecy. It's earthbound. What about the scriptures that are prophetic that actually prophesy of God's purpose? God's purpose for his people Israel. God's intent for a people he created. Not a person, a people. So the scriptures are living and active. They're sharper than a double-edged sword. They declare an eternal future unseen, finished work for the body of Christ called us, Israel, sons, children. So if we have no concept of this, then how can we enter into and possess the reality that's for us? And so when we read this, we'll go, oh, that's not for me. Don't understand it. And yet it's directly speaking to the people of God who are Israel which is you and I, because it's not an Israel of a bloodline. It's not an Israel because of a landmass. It's an Israel based on spiritual promises, based on the spirit. It's a spiritual people. No genealogy, not mother or father, not of the order of the Levitical line or man of Melchizedek, which he had none of that, which is the lineage we're of. So the scripture speaks to purpose. One. We're all about the ten. See the disconnect? We're all about the me. No, God's going, it's my purpose. One. Because I am one. And inside that one purpose, there is a manifold, but it's one. And this is the challenge because, I'm going to say it again, the context For the scriptures, the prophetic, living, eternal gospel is a marriage covenant. Everything is defined through that lens. Okay? Everything. The blood is marked from that. Why he came is marked in that. To bring us into. And we have to grasp this through revelation and that requires a seeking of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Only God can reveal this, what I'm saying. Only God. Outside of that, all we have is a head knowledge. And I'll tell you, and I'm, you know, I've told you a lot, head knowledge won't enable you to live this. It can't. It's, it's, it's of man. Okay? So there must be a mass repentance if we don't have this revelation. And all that means is a brand new mindset. 
that I can't change my mind. I can't read these scriptures and change my mindset. I can read them and fill my head with technical knowledge and then I'll go try to live it out. Or when he comes and says, I see your business in your heart as your number one love. Your life shows me that. It shows you that. And today I want to deal with that. I'm covering you and I want to exchange me for you. Do you want that? Now, if Chris's identity and his purpose and his sense of meaning and his trust is in what's in his heart and he doesn't know the one asking for it, what do you think the chances are of Chris handing that over? So it's based on hearing what's being said and it comes and the Holy Spirit's hovering, waiting to literally implant it, which is going to save our souls, James 1, 19. And it's going to release me from me. And it's all a work of power through a seeking and an asking because I recognize I'm falling short of something you died for me to be in. I'm not bad. I'm not naughty. I'm none of those things. I'm just not in what you're asking me to be in, and I want to be in. He goes, well, I've just been waiting for you to ask. And it says that, doesn't it? It it actually says, you lust and you do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And then it says, and you ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss. You see, you can't even ask the right thing because you don't have sight to ask for what it is. And so we ask amiss. And I just love what you're saying about the divine covering, you know, and I couldn't help but think about Hosea and Goma mm. and how, you know, God asked Hosea to to marry this prostitute and to, to become, you know, one with her. And yet time and time again, she uses the very resources and the love covering you know to do her own thing and be independent and live her life anyway Mm. apart from her husband and it gets to such a point that she's left him so many times that she's now you know degraded into a slave market and now he has to purchase his own wife back I mean, powerful if we think about us as the church, you know, that he, he sent his son, his payment, to, to bring his wife back to him, not just to restore her back to perfect health and wholeness in a physical way, but to restore her back to his heart, to restore her back and make her, make her his own again, and for her to see him as hers. Um, but that's the thing, we can live enslaved in a slave market in the world if we're friends with the world we're enslaved to the world we are finding our desires and our needs from the world we have a friendship there's there's a a sense of uh warmth and affection you know with with the world um but he's divinely covering his bride, you know, his church, and he he has made a way to constantly call her back, and he's calling her back again, you know. Um, and like you said, Chris, it's this, when we become aware, and I, again, I was thinking about Ezekiel 16, you know, where it talks about this God seeing this, this baby in its mess, hasn't been taken care of, and he comes and he wraps the baby and puts salt and 
looks after the Baba, and the Baba is so dependent and has been left on its own. And then this, this beautiful child grows up, and, and God looks on and sees this child, and then she, she forms, and she becomes a woman. And then it just, we, we see the, the love, you know. And it says that he put, he put his wing over her, he covered her, and he bought her things, he, he dressed her, he adorned her. And what happened? She became so self-aware with the external adornments the, that she realized she became beautiful. She lost conscious of the one who had gave her everything, who had adorned her, who looked after her from birth. And she now was on display because of her beauty. She attracted everything else, and that's where she gave her attention to. And again, he warns her, and he speaks to her tenderly but firmly because it is a serious thing. Yeah. I love those words. I, mean, I love all that you said, but when we become aware, and that's the challenge. Well, how do you become aware well, he has to share. Someone has to turn up and share of a reality that makes us aware of something we're not aware of. So then we can partake of it or at least turn to it. And the challenge is, is that very thing. Do you know what I mean? Because the pattern within everything in God is, is God is always speaking. But the disciples are unaware of what he says when he speaks. So he has to keep saying the same thing because he's, he, he knows that his disciples are unaware because their lives are the reflection of their unaware state. You know, and it's the same with us today. So he has to keep sharing. We together have to keep sharing this reality like every one of us have to share to the revelation we have because through this awareness, people are being made aware of something that's for us, for them. Everything he does is for us to bring us into the reality he died for us to experience. Like he's not trying to hurt us. We're not trying to hurt one another. We're trying from love to say, hey, this is who we are and this is what it looks like to live as we are. So we all experience the incredible, abundant, eternal life that's in Christ. And through that, three things happen. Firstly, God is absolutely glorified through us as an individual and us as a church, knowing him, knowing who we are, and living that out. Okay? He is glorified. That's the reason we've been given life, isn't it? To bring glory to his name. Full stop. Okay? The second thing is you and I as a church and a body get to experience this incredible eternal life. This love which is heavenly within you that never runs dry and is abundant and overflowing. That's just love. Never mind peace, joy, gentleness, kindness. Never mind being patient. Hey, that's one attribute which is enough to rock you and this world. And then a lost world get to see God in the church. Now, all those three things bring glory to the Father because we are growing. And see, this is a maturity issue. 
This is not, um, this, is, this is a meat issue. This is like coming in, discovering the start, and then growing into the full stature of who God says we can become. Okay? And so this isn't just get across the line. We're talking, this, this is eternal purpose. This is why you were given life. This is the demonstration of the kingdom people, Israel, on earth. This is, this is macro. This is big, you know. Um, Paul said, you know, I, I can't talk to this particular group of people because they've become dull of hearing. He rocked up to the Corinthians and he said, I can't speak to you as the spiritual people because you are just human. You just keep arguing about who's the best one and is it of this and is it of this. So I, I can't release this because they weren't growing and we want to be a people that grows. We want to be a people that enter into the fullness. We want to be the family that God says we can be. We want to be the Israel and be the demonstration of Israel. And God is covering us like he covered the woman in John 8. And God spoke to me profoundly about this through James. And he started to show me things in John 8 that I'd never seen before. You see, the religious people pull the woman out of where she's been committing adultery and put it in the center of the court to shame her, to look at her. Love covers. Lust uncovers. Lust judges. Lust condemns. So she's found in adultery. Jesus turns up. Now, by law, what should happen to her? She should be stoned to death. But there's a person called Jesus Christ who fulfills the law. And it comes into him and he says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. It is a new day. Did that make her adultery right? No. So what did Jesus do? When man is uncovering, what is Jesus doing? Covering. And then he says these words at the end. He says, lady, go away and sin no more. The opportunity you have here is to not be a woman who continues to commit adultery physically. There's something far greater here that the woman needed to come into. But he's saying, lady, today I've covered you. If I hadn't turned up, you're dead. Because the religious spirit will actually stone you to death. But I'm here to cover you that you would actually come out of adultery and into me. Go and sin no more. Take advantage of what's happening right now. Now here he does. What does he go? Before this, he's writing in the sand, isn't he? No one knows what he writes. And everyone's trying to guess what he's writing. But you know what the Holy Spirit said to me? He said, it's not about what he wrote. It's something way bigger than what he wrote. He said this. He said, the son is covering her so then he can write on her heart. He's covering so there's an opportunity to write the covenant on her heart and her mind. He's covering the church so he can write the covenant, the commandment, so you can keep it. How did... God get the Ten Commandments on the stone. His finger. It wasn't the stone that had the glory on it. It was the word on the stone. 
Tracking with me? It's the word. So he wants to write his word where now? So he's covering us if we are in a form of spiritual adultery, loving another more than him, loving a possession more than him, not living for him and with him, but loving for self. He, like the woman, is covering that, praying, believing, modeling this love, which is all-consuming, that never leaves, hoping that if that is us, we turn, seek, while he has an opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit to engrave the commandment on our heart, not with ink, with power the thing that we cannot do. And if he does that, I then can live out and be faithful and obedient to the covenant that I was predestined to know before the foundations of the earth. That's mercy. In view of God's mercy, offer your body, Greg, as a living sacrifice, not singing songs. As a living sacrifice, lay your heart and mind, your entire life on the altar so I can engrave my word through power on your heart and mind so you can get off the altar and just live. That's right. And you will not have a person or a possession in your heart or your mind again. Yeah. You will have me. Yeah. And how much of that do you want me to continually write and engrave on your heart and mind so you are set apart. Do you know being justified and set apart are completely two different things? You can be justified and not set apart. You can be justified and set apart. But you can just receive the blood and go thank you and then live for you. Or you can receive the blood and then allow the power in the blood to completely set you apart from you, every other human and every other possession. And implant you into oneness into him. Because the last thing it says here is that the Holy Spirit has been made to dwell in you. And I want to ask you a question. Is it the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Meaning your innermost recesses of you. Do you think you can actually love you? I'm just going to leave you that question. I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to leave you that question. That's good. He's the divine legislator, a eh? handwritten. I was had an example of um, um, Shyla and her friends. They decided to write to the prime minister about having a, a month of uh, slime. And that meant that school kids, you know, just had a month off of doing slime and everyone entered into doing slime. Anyway, we, she... They got a letter back from Prime Minister who said, I'll, I'll think about it. Anyway, we're having a bit of a laugh. She was like, you've given me something to think about. So anyway, we're having a laugh last night. And, and of course we know Jacinda hasn't handwritten specifically to Shyla and her friends about, you know, um, it's lovely. She's got her name at the, at the bottom. But, you know, Jesus, and I'm thinking about John 8, the divine legislator, handwritten, personally, taking his time and I love in John 8 you know those accusers are standing there accusing and it says that he he heard them but he didn't answer them and it's in the silence and there's something about that question that was just posed and that's sometimes what we have to do just before him is be still and let him speak 
And can we, can we hear what is written? You know, James, when he says, you know, you adulteresses, it's like he's drawing a line in the sand, just as Jesus drew a line in the sand that day with that adulterous woman. Handwriting. Now, no one knows exactly what, what was written, and like Greg said, spirit revealed to him. Some say what was written is, earth accuses earth. Those men were accusing her. It's earth accusing, you know, earth. And yet they were violating the very same law. With that law, a man should have been pulled, the man that she was sleeping with, should have been with her. He was meant to be stoned as well, and yet he wasn't there. And yet the Pharisees, without even realizing it, because the motive of their heart wasn't actually to have justification or to the justice, he, they were trying to trip Jesus up, right? So even the motive is so impure. Jesus is so onto it, right? He's, he's not even paying attention to the accusers for the sake of his bride, you know, and I think again that spirit, earth accuses earth. That's how fights break out. It's the selfishness, the pointing, the blaming, the looking around, and yet we're all the the the, comp, the, the very accuser of violating the, the very same law. You know, um, but yeah, I just love that legislating. He's handwriting on our hearts um, what is what is written, and can we? hear what is written and can we see the spoken word when he's before us because it is it's our spiritual senses that are um, paying special attention to the unseen one yeah we're gonna have group discussion um gone a little bit over sort of that 11 30 it's always a bit tricky when you have a panel because it takes a bit longer but um questions are on your table So have a look, find those. Uh, As we've been doing, just designate a person to read them out. And just encourage you to come out tonight because we're going to look at the works that were finished, predestined before the foundations of the earth, which all connect into what you've just heard. Thanks, team.